Amen. All right, if you'd have a seat and open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We've got uh, just a couple sermons left in this terribly convicting book, um, in this wonderfully convicting book, I should say. 1 Timothy, we've got a study guide. If you've uh, missed some of the studies, there's a study guide you can get if you'd like to listen or, or look at it in the future. It's uh, really helpful in a lot of ways. Um, but we are going to uh, get right into uh, where we're going in 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, verses 1 through 10. So uh, if you'd follow along while I read it, I'm reading uh, out of the ESV, and it goes like this. Verse 1 of chapter 6. Let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters <clears throat> excuse me, must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So as we approach this, please know that um, pretty much God spends the week revealing to me my idolatry. I don't say that flippantly. I say that because a pastor should have to engage the text before he preaches it. And if I approach it with, this is what everyone needs to learn, and I'm not learning myself, it doesn't come out very honest. And so uh, I got the snot beat out of me this week, and you get to see that, and it'll be fantastic to share all of my wonderful idolatry. So as we approach this, know that Timothy is a young pastor, young as he's a, probably about 30. He is uh, inexperienced, never been a pastor. He's been Paul's kind of sidekick all these times. He's been sent to Ephesus, one of the largest churches at this time, and it is really messed up with bad leaders teaching bad doctrine. And he has spent this letter, as he does with 2 Timothy and Titus, kind of telling people what the church is supposed to look like, how the church is supposed to function, what or who should lead the church, and those types of things. So in chapter 5, and as we go into chapter 6, Paul has been concerned, really with the whole letter, but in particularly these chapters, with upholding that which is honorable, and removing that which is dishonorable in the church. And he spoke about, in chapter 5, the relationships between uh, men and women, young and old, treating you know, older men with respect, and, and s girls as sisters in Christ, and really how to have relationships that are honorable in the church. And then he continued in that chapter, and he talked about uh, how to honor those who were in need, in particular widows, and how they are to be honored. And then last week we read how good pastors are supposed to be honored, especially those who work hard to bring honor, basically, to the name of Jesus through preaching and teaching. And those who do not, those bad pastors who basically bring dishonor, are to be rebuked, not because they mislead or hurt people, although that certainly does happen. Primarily, they are to be disciplined and called to repent because their bad leadership, their unqualified leadership, their ungodly leadership brings dishonor to the name of Jesus and to the bride, His church. That's what's the problem. Now, when I first got married, I've been married for 15 years to the most awesome woman in the world, and she 
has taught me a lot. I've learned a lot from her. She's become a little like me. When we first got married, we took like those personality tests, of which I don't give to anybody when I do premarital because I think they're stupid. But the thing that came out was we both came out dominant. Great. So we have the wonderful ability to rebuke each other and hopefully listen half the time. And it's a good thing. We, we shape each other in the midst of the fire called marriage. And when I got married, uh, I misunderstood or didn't understand the concept fully of one flesh. And so I would just kind of live as if I wasn't married in the sense of I said a lot of foolish things, stupid things, making bad jokes, sometimes at her expense, believing that I was simply representing myself. But when I got married, I found out very quickly that some of the embarrassing things I said, stupid things I said, bad jokes I told, were now reflecting on someone else. And she would tell me, like, We'd go home, and she'd say, I can't believe you said X, Y, Z. I'm like, why? Wow, it was kind of funny. She's like, no one laughed. I don't know. That was kind of funny. And she said, do you understand that now that represents me? I'm like, what are you talking about that represents you? I'm just like, everyone knows me. She's like, no, you are now married to me. You are my husband. What you say impacts me, reflects upon me, and what I say or do does the same. Really? I guess that makes sense. And it, over years of learning that by basically making mistakes, I began to understand that concept that I was reflecting in many ways my entire family, but in particular my marriage. Now, at the same time, or in a similar way, those who confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, those people who are genuinely saved by Jesus, everyone who is married to Jesus, okay, we are called the bride, sorry guys, you are a wife in some sense, a bride of Jesus, So everyone who's married to Jesus is to live, I say is to because we're not very good at it, is to live a commitment to uphold the honor of your husband, the honor of God. We are to commit to, primarily above all else, bringing honor and fame and credit and glory to the name of Jesus. That is our role. That's our primary responsibility. And how easily... Maybe you're different than me. How easily I forget, we forget, that every moment, every decision, every word that we speak, we bring either honor or dishonor to the name of Jesus. Especially leaders. Because leaders are placed in a position to say, imitate this. So if they're obviously practicing something that's not worthy of imitation, that's actually bringing dishonor, they get double dishonor, hence judge more strictly. And I often wonder how our lives might be different, might look different, might feel different, might be approached differently, if we actually lived like we believed, because I think many of us are claimed to believe it, if we actually lived like we believed that each thought that each word, that each action we took was an act of worship, was a moment where we proclaimed something. And sometimes it's actually false proclamation. But it's an act of worship. If we would approach it differently, maybe more slow to speak, as the Bible tells us to do. Now, it's not that we don't worship. We are creatures of worship. I believe God designed us to be just that. It's that we're worshiping or addicted to worshiping false gods, the wrong God. And it's most of the time, I think, we are actively working to not uphold the glory of God, to not give fame and credit to God, but to in fact give glory and worship to some form in the idol of me. I don't say me, you can use me for yourself, okay? The idol of me. And think about it, most of the questions in my mind, and I say this unless I intentionally try not to, my natural default mode is to think about what me wants, what does me need, what does does me deserve, what does me not deserve or entitled to, Um, how should should me be served, what is me going to get out of this, I mean, what, what about me, constantly? I don't think we're actively like verbalizing that, but I, I believe that's the way we, most of us think. And because the God of me doesn't actually uh, like sacrifice, things that cost you stuff, 
doesn't like to be humbled? Because me is always basically thinking about me. Everyone, including Jesus, becomes a servant of me. A means for me to get what I actually want or think that I need. And I believe at the core of it, that's actually what happened with the leadership at Ephesus. And the leaders became more concerned with their own honor, in whatever form that might have taken, than God's honor. They became overly, I guess, concerned with what actually worked to get what they wanted versus actually what was right, which may preclude them from getting what they think they need or want. And they stopped following the Bible, the Scriptures, and they ultimately robbed God of His glory. I don't really think we actually believe we're thieves of glory, robbing God of His glory. But when we pursue our own honor, we do. Honoring God, upholding God, giving God glory, giving Him credit, making much of Him, demands that Jesus becomes and remains more important than anything else you might gain apart from Him. And the, the sick thing is, is that we'll all go, of course, I believe that, yes, preach it. When we really don't live that way. We are overly concerned with our own honor of what's going to bring us whatever we feel like we deserve or have earned or entitled to. And ascribing God honor is not to be predicated on situation or circumstance. If God is truly sovereign and truly in control of <clears throat> excuse me, any trial we might go through, it is intended, as painful as it might be, to bring Him glory. Again, oh yeah, I believe that. Whatever. I'm saying that as a person that quite frankly, doesn't live that most of the time. Though I know it. And it's because of the sin in me. Now, <clears throat> a true heart of worship, a true heart, the thing that I think we all are to aspire to, and yet we'll never fully attain until we're with Jesus, quite frankly. A true heart of worship is genuine contentment where God has you. It's contentment with what He has given you, and with what He hasn't. And it's contentment with the time in which He gives it, if He gives it at all. Contentment, though, I think we, we kind of pervert it, and we think that it's this joyless, like, make-do-ism. I know, I'm going to be content. I'm just going to make do. This is what I get, but I think it sucks. And that's kind of how we live. We actually live like grimacing and, and making, you know, these faces that we're really not content, but we pretend to be. What I think true contentment is actually a fulfilling sense of satisfaction where you're at. Where James can say, take joy in that situation. That is terrible. If satisfaction in Jesus alone is not pursued, because I think it's a pursuit. I think it's a lifelong pursuit where we're constantly believing other things are more satisfying. If we're not constantly seeking to be satisfied in Jesus alone, I believe that discontent can actually lead to unbelief. And I say that because I think this is what happened to the false teachers. Where they basically end up made a, making a shipwreck of their faith, as Paul describes it, because it began with believing something else was going to make them happier. Now, Paul begins in verses 1 and 2 here um, by talking about people, I think, who would naturally probably feel and should feel the most discontent in this particular situation because they're slaves. And no matter what situation any of us might be in, I think we could probably safely say slavery would probably be worse or at least make it worse. And so these guys are slave, which is a large probably part of the population of Ephesus and a good portion of the church, uh, probably attracted by the idea of being free in Christ. And it's estimated, I've seen one-third or one-half of the population of Rome at this time was slaves. And slavery, uh, when we think about that, our, our minds go a little bit different because we have kind of a Western idea of what slavery was like, which there, there are some similarities. But Paul, is, uh, in 1 Timothy, shared his opinion about enslavers 
and he calls them at the, the end of 1 Timothy lawless and, and sinful and evil. But slavery in the Roman world is a little bit different than how it developed in Europe and, and what became to be known or what we'd probably remember or think about in America. In the ancient world, slavery wasn't solely based on, on race. And, and as we might think, there was some that resulted from like ethnic wars where it would naturally we took over this nation and this race now is, is submitted to us because we've enslaved it. But a lot of the slavery actually was out of uh, economic necessity. Some people voluntarily went into slavery, uh, chose to be bond servants. Uh, some people were working off debt because they couldn't afford it, so they chose to do that by service and they would be enslaved. Uh, sometimes people were enslaved because of, uh, to punish a crime and uh, they couldn't pay, and so they would go in to basically make restitution for a crime they committed, but there was always a way to obtain your freedom. So it was a little bit differently, and a lot of slaves in this time lived in households that, uh, like members of a family. <clears throat> some of them held positions in society. They actually were respectable. Uh, some slaves actually had slaves. It was kind of a, an interesting um, situation or office, if you will. But at the core of it was still slavery was slavery in that one person still owned another. And it was granted or expected that you didn't want to be in that situation. You were discontent. Um, and so Paul addresses these slavery and particularly says those who are under the yoke, which is usually has kind of the intonation of oppressive slavery. And in this case, he initially begins to talk about those who have unbelieving masters. And he tells them something that would seem odd, which is to consider your masters worthy of all honor. Brings this idea of honor, which, again, you would think that probably these guys are wanting to be out of slavery, claiming that, like, we're going to be free in Christ, this is wrong, and all those things. And Paul's saying, consider them worthy of honor. Basically, work hard. He said the same thing in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where a lot of them probably wanted to be freed and get out of slavery when they became Christians. And it says in, in verse 20 of chapter 7, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. It does say, but if you, gain, you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity, which opportunities did come. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man of the Lord, and likewise he was free when called is a slave of Christ. So basically it says, just stay in the position you were called. If you can get free, that's fine, but stay there. And the motivation, he says in Timothy here, is for working hard, even as a slave, is not to get a raise. It's not to work hard so that you can get your freedom. Work hard so that you'll get a better position in the house. Work hard so that you'll get some kind of personal benefit. It has nothing to do. Giving honor to the slave owner, the oppressive slave owner, has absolutely nothing to do with getting some sense of honor for the slave. He says it has two things. One, God's name is honored. God's name is honored. That's what's most important. Not your comfort. God's name is going to be honored through your example in this situation. And then he also says the teaching is going to be somewhat protected. The truth of the gospel is protected by how you live in this bad situation, how you were content being a slave. And not content like, fine, I'll just be a slave. No, you be the best slave. You work hard. You give the master honor. But what if he's oppressive? All of them will give him honor. He doesn't deserve it. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And so... He goes on, though, because guys, again, they're, they're thinking about this. Well, what if the guy's a believer? Shouldn't he free me? And he addresses those who have believing masters, and he reminds them, don't take advantage of the fact that he's a brother. Give him double honor. Work twice as hard, because now you're benefiting another brother. And by God's grace, we don't practice slavery in our nation today. But I think that a lot of people, including maybe yourself, view their jobs as imprisonment, oppressive imprisonment, and your bosses as taskmasters. And if you are a boss, you can know 
that some people actually think this way about you, that you are a slave driver, okay? Now, there are, I believe, I don't have a statistic to throw out here, but I actually believe there are more people discontent with their jobs than are content. More people that would like to be out of their situation, they believe the grass is greener type of situation than what they're actually in. And that goes for those who are plumbers, electricians, and moms. Quite frankly, there's a lot of moms like, this sucks, right? Read on Facebook, you'll see them all. (laughs) My kids are going nuts, right? It's true. But that's still a role, a job, that you go, oh, I think I should be out of this situation. Now, I... Do not think, although I think it's a good benefit, that you should be primarily concerned with working hard to honor your boss, your husband, the business, your kids, but primarily concerned with upholding the sufficiency and honor of Jesus in those situations. And to proclaim as you work, in the way that you work, that Jesus is enough, even if I don't get the raise, the promotion, the regard. Jesus is enough. His regard is enough. His love is enough. Even if the kids don't obey me or do what I want, Jesus is Lord, and I will rest in that. Check out Colossians 3. This is a verse, if you hate your role, if you hate your job, read this. Read this constantly. Colossians 3.23 Whatever you do, which I'm pretty sure, I'm not a Greek scholar, and Greek means whatever you do, okay? Everything you do. Work heartily. I like how I Work heartily. As for the Lord and not for men. I mean, is that how you approach it? Is that how you approach working in your job? Do you give your boss honor? Or do you talk about him at the water cooler and about how you want to get out of the situation and how corrupt and mean or whatever unfair he is? Moms can do the same thing. Dads can do the same thing. Work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. Knowing, believing, being convicted and trusting that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. I don't know how more plain it can get. And how are you serving the Lord in whatever role you happen to be in? Are you serving with an attitude to uphold His honor, or are you waiting and bitter because you're not getting whatever honor you feel like you deserve? Wow, what a comforting sermon. I know! We work heartily for the Lord. And Paul says... Teach and urge these things. Teach and urge these things. So I will teach and urge you as he, Paul told young Pastor Timothy, and I'm telling you, be content. Be content. Work heartily for the Lord. Forget the temporal rewards that you want, you think you should obtain, you think you should deserve, and focus on the rewards you have in Christ. That takes discipline, I know, because our mind so easily goes the other direction. But you need to stop. We need to stop. I need to stop being governed by the honor that I want for myself in whatever form that is and start pursuing a desire to honor God even if that means I suffer and work hard and don't get any credit. Where are you right now dishonoring God with an attitude of discontentment? Because I think it's dangerous. I think it's so dangerous, and I'm going to show you why. But it's that place where you believe that you deserve blank. And until you get whatever that thing you deserve, you're going to be bitter and dissatisfied. And I, as I was reading this, I actually fear that he has to make a point about believing masters, which I think is odd that he has to do. He can't just say masters. Because quite frankly, I think Christian workers are sometimes the worst workers. I know this unfortunately from experience. 
where you take your grace and you use it as an excuse to basically abuse and be lazy and not work. And I know so many employers that have had to hire, they like would hire guys, you know, because they're like, well, I know this guy, he's a good Christian guy, and he ends up being a horrific worker. And it becomes an embarrassment to him, an embarrassment to Jesus, because that guy's a Christian. The question is, as you work or as you lead as a boss, do you realize that you're employed by the Lord? And the question is, do you recognize the sermon that you're preaching? If they even know you're a Christian. Sometimes we'll hide that because we wouldn't dare want them to know. And I'm not talking about like, oh, using profanity in the workplace and that kind of junk. I'm just talking about how you work. How do you work? And do you work as if you're working for the Lord? So then we get to verse 3 and 5, and he makes a weird shift here. This was what screwed me up, where he, he goes back to talking to false, about false teachers, and I was like, uh, what? And so it, I just struggled because it seems kind of disconnected, but what he begins to do, I think, is to identify, because this whole book is about these false teachers that come in, and he's trying to clarify what the truth is for all these things. And I think what he's starting to get at is what's actually going on or began in the heart of the false teacher. And it should be scary for us all. Because I actually think that every false teacher, every journey of a false teacher that starts to go away from God and away from His truth, begins with discontentment. It begins with, and you're like, well, I'm just, I'm just kind of discontent, dissatisfied. I think it's, there's much more weight to it than that. Where you begin to focus on how much you deserve, how much you sacrificed, how underappreciated you are, making note of every way that you are dissatisfied with your marriage, your job, your church, your life. Those are the beginnings of discontent, which I think lead to a dark path. Because when that attitude begins to be birthed in you, It begins to direct your thoughts. It begins to direct your decisions and your words and your conversations. Because you're just governed and overwhelmed by, I'm not getting the credit where credit's due, and I deserve this, and this is not right. I'm dissatisfied. And you end up becoming a false teacher. Like, well, I'm not a false teacher. I'm not in front of a church teaching. And I'm going to define a little bit, in this sense, a false teacher as someone who begins to perpetuate the idea, either by word or deed, that something outside of Jesus is what will make you and everyone else happy. That something else is going to make you happier than what Jesus already has for you. And you give in to what I would call unbelief. You begin to trust other things rather than Jesus. And it's hard to see discontentment when it, because no, everyone's very good at hiding it, right? No, oh, I'm fine. How are you? We have a false, you know, the smiles that we pretend that we're content. And so what Paul goes into, he starts describing these false teachers in a, in a kind of a character way. And I think it's because we actually see the end result oftentimes where discontentment brought someone to. We're like, well, what is a false, how do I know if there's a false teacher? Well, the first mark, he says, is they, they teach uh, things that disagree with Jesus. And he says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine that does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. So he's like, he's puffed up, he's prideful. And a false teacher may actually say spiritual things, biblical-sounding things. We've talked about this. And the problem is, is what they teach about their situation is actually in conflict with Jesus and the teachings that accord with godliness. And it's note where Paul puts his teachings online with Jesus' words. So as Paul is teaching, Jesus is teaching, if you disobey what Paul is saying, you're disobeying Jesus. And those who become so overwhelmed with their own honor, they either leave the faith, I think that's what happens, they are so discontent they find something outside of the faith to satisfy them, which never really does, so they just kind of go to the next thing. Or worse, they stay, stay, and then begin to twist Scripture to justify their sin and to justify how they see things. Why have a right to be discontent? 
The other mark is this attitude that comes in where he says they have a craving, an unhealthy craving for controversy. Now the verb craving here is, is it really it talks about being sick, like having a disease. And a false teacher begins with, with I think, spending all kinds of energy justifying or, or looking for ways to make themselves feel good about the discontentment, about the thing that they want instead of Jesus. And they look on obscure passages, ask tons of questions, constantly asking questions, and disputing about words. And quite frankly, these are the people that want to process and process and process and process and ask, oh, why discontentment, discontentment, don't I deserve this, what about this, didn't God promise this, constantly over and over again. Never wanting to come to conclusion. Never want to face the fact that actually their discontent might be sinful. That what they think God's promised they've actually have, or God hasn't promised what they think they deserve. And Paul says in the next letter in 2 Timothy 3, uh, and he goes through and warns them, avoid people like this. And one he says in verse 7, avoid people who are always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of truth. They have a craving to ask questions. Well, I'm just wondering out loud. Why is the church like this? Why is my life like this? Shouldn't my husband and wife be doing this? Never actually wanting to come to truth. And that kind of person produces envy, which envy is just simply when you're coveting what someone else has and actually resenting them oftentimes, which is another form of discontent. Or dissension, where you start disagreeing with leadership in particular. Not because they're being unbiblical, because they're not giving you what you think you want, or should, or deserve, discontentment. Slander comes in the same way. Evil suspicions. You start questioning the honesty of everyone, of who are actually, uh, especially those who differ with you. You Start questioning God, like, why doesn't God want to give me this? Maybe He doesn't love me. Do you hate me, God? You start asking, like, you know, I, I'm not supposed to be discontent. I'm not supposed to be uncomfortable. Said who? Seems like the closer your life gets to be like Jesus, the more you might experience some level of suffering like Jesus. Constant friction among people. They're hard to be around, quite frankly. But I think more importantly, the third mark here is this motivation where it's this little you know, six or seven word statement, imagining that godliness is the means of gain. This is where I think he's going. He gets, I think, to the heart of the matter, explaining that the only reason these false teachers are in religion or spiritual or, or in the ministry, if you will, is because they hope to gain something in addition to God Himself. And people who hope to gain something miss the fact that the Gospel has given them everything. And the idea of wanting to gain something else is the very heart of discontentment. Now, in verse 6, he describes the problem with this pursuit that they're trying to gain in addition to Jesus. He says There's a great, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. See, the pursuit of godliness, I believe, is a means of gain when... You are satisfied with what Jesus has and has given you. Great question. Are you satisfied with what Jesus has and has given you right now? It's hard to sit on. Because all of us have some level of discontent in us. And if we give into that discontent, it's dangerous. Our existence in this life is a journey from nakedness in the womb to nakedness in the grave. And we'll take nothing from this world. Anything we could possibly gain in this world is going to be meaningless when we die. We're not going to care. We're not going to think, man, what an awesome motorcycle I left back on earth. Okay? You're not going to care because I'm going to be riding it, right? <laughs> no, I will never have a motorcycle. But that's okay. Godliness is a means of gain with contentment. Otherwise, it's not a means of gain. Now, Paul charged Timothy in chapter 4 to train for godliness. 
So it's supposed to train with contentment. And the goal of our training, the goal of our training isn't, this is really hard, not to get the list of benefits you think from having training. The goal of training is to get God. To know God more. To be more satisfied in Him. To, to make getting anything else pale in comparison to getting God. If you approach it like, well, I'm going to train for godliness so that I can be a better husband so that I have a better marriage or a better mom so I can have better kids. And if that's the primary, you're off track. If you don't start with simply knowing God, being satisfied in God, learning about who God is, and letting that transform you so that you're a better husband, wife, mother, father, you're off track. It starts with knowing God. That's where the training comes from. You work hard to know Him. And as you do, you begin, I believe, by the power of God's Spirit to believe that God is giving you exactly what you need emotionally, physically, spiritually. But we kind of question it because like, well, I don't think I need that. This is really difficult. I don't like that I have to deal with this. Well, clearly God thinks you need to deal with this. It's going to be interesting to see how this economic situation in our world kind of plays itself out because I think it's actually revealed a tremendous number of idols and it's allowed us and forced us to simplify our lives a little bit, maybe a lot, to say what is most important actually. It's been said that many of us know the uh, price of everything and the value of nothing because our lives are so filled with, with luxuries that we have forgot to enjoy the simple necessities, the fact that God gives you breath the fact that God promises to give you food and clothing. And Paul ends this passage as we get to verse 9 and 10, warning those people who actually choose to remain discontent and to go that path. In essence, when they choose that, I think their choices declare quite boldly that Jesus is not enough. That I need this in addition to Jesus. I mean, I love Jesus, but I also would really like this. And we are governed by that. And he writes in verse 9, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge, plunge like full immersion into ruin and destruction. I believe that the only reason people desire to be rich is because they will or believe that it will make them content. If I only had blank. And so, all of our desires, no matter what they are, all of our sin and pursuit of things other than God is born out of a need to feel contentment. I think most of us, if we could actually be honest for a second and kind of put all the idols aside, the things we think we we want... We'd say, ultimately, the number thing, I don't care what I have as long as I'm content. So I sense contentment. If I, feel, I don't have to have anything else if I can just be satisfied fully and joyfully satisfied in what I have. The problem is, when your discontentment leads you away from Jesus, which it will, it will lead you into unbelief. And I know unbelief is kind of a weird thing to think about, but really what it is, it's creating something else to function as your Savior. To believe that it's going to save you. Or a, a false gospel. Or you believe actually your meaning and your hope and your joy comes from having whatever it is. Whether it be money. There's all kinds of gospels of, of different flavors. The gospel of money is the one he's picking on. But it's just a very common one. Where you think about positioning yourself so that you can make more money. So that you can get whatever car, house, thing you think you need to feel some sense of identity. There's a gospel of health. And that hits us when we say, I need to be healthy. I need to make sure I get an extra 35 years or I won't be satisfied in life. The gospel of sex is a common one. 
leads men to pornography where they believe that they're going to be happier with some picture of a chick on a page than they are with their bride that God has said be fully satisfied in. And women, maybe not so much, but the gospel of relationships, causing them to pursue other, other men, if you will, or to put all of your meaning and hope on the fact that I have this one relationship or I need this I need a husband, I need a wife. If I don't have a family, if I don't have kids, I won't be satisfied. You think about that. It doesn't mean you don't show empathy to someone and say, you know, I'm sorry. I, I, I do feel that you're in this experience, that you, know, you have these desires, but where is that going to lead you? And if you remain discontent, it can lead you further away from the gospel. Some have a gospel of career, gospel of education. I won't be, you know, my identity is wrapped up in, in getting a certain level of learning. doesn't mean learning is bad, but it's like, what's the motivation behind it, really? For me, I'll tell you this week, this is where my idol comes out. It's gloriously sorrowful and terrible. Uh, Wednesday are my days where I close off to kind of study and pretty much just turn my phone off and, and study and write. And so what happens typically is I get a lot of the sermon done. I usually end with, you know, pages of notes. And then Thursday kind of gets polished and tightened up. But this was like, it looked like someone just like, you know, wrote out some nonsense on a page. And I had like a partial introduction. I got the end of the day like, oh my gosh, what is going on? Because I couldn't get, I was like, I didn't know what God was trying to say. I was praying. So then... And this is what works every week. He's like, da, 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 idol of the week. Bam! And he just nails you with it. Here's my idol of the week. Got an email, and it just came from a, a series of discussions with different pastors and found out that a pastor uh, was moving his church into uh, a, a local city nearby. And immediately, I got threatened. Immediately. And started feeling territorial, started feeling fears and all these things that are not rational. Sin, sin ultimately, there's no rationality behind it. And I was sitting there going, oh my gosh. And at the core of it, honestly, was discontentment. I couldn't even tell you what I was discontent. Like, what would make me content? But I felt threatened that another church was here, that, that a, a church that I like. It's like, well, well, it's a crappy church. Who cares? Right? <laughs> <laughs> The church is preaching the gospel, and I, and I love the guy. They're like, that's great. What are you doing so close, you know? <laughs> and what are those fears rooted in? Well, oh, gosh, what if people go over there? Or what if, they, I mean, it's just, honestly, pure ugliness. Pure ugliness. I, and I confess that. That's, what I, that's where I rested on. And then when you're sitting there processing that, going, oh, I, wow, I'm like really discontent. And Jesus is like, I just written like, is Jesus enough? And I'm like, oh, crap. You know, what am I going to say on Sunday? And then you step back and you see it. So now you're, not, you're out of the emotion maybe of being threatened. You're like, oh, my gosh, I was threatened. Where, where did those fears come from? And that happened. It surprises you. It's not like you get up, you know what? I think I'm going to be dissatisfied today. You know, it's just like, bam, whoa. And oftentimes, if you're not actually thinking about God's honor is most important. God's glory is most important. Even if it means this church dies, Sam, to the glory of God. Oh, yeah. I'm a servant. That's hard. And that was my idol. And I went home and told, and waiting for my wife to like, like, oh, honey, you know, like, oh, help me. And I said, yeah, I felt this, told her this. And she's like, that's fantastic. Like, what? You know, I want you to, come on. This is what husbands and wives do. They're like, oh, you sh-, you know, it's okay to feel that. No, it's not. She rebuked me, but in a very creative way. She's like, oh, that's fantastic. I'm like, fantastic? What are you talking about? Like, pour my heart in. You're telling like, these emotions and fears. Like, oh, I think it's great. Let the idols out. Let them be revealed. I'm like, dang it. So it's the best thing that could happen. He's like, you know what? It is. It is. And it's not like that's, you know, honestly for a pastor who, who helped to plant a church, 
it's not like I don't see the other church signs come up, and it's not like that idol doesn't go boom up again every time. Because discontentment is something that rears its heads constantly. Constantly. And if you're not careful, it will lead you away from God, where your honor, whatever you feel like you deserve, is more important than what God says you need and he wants for his glory. Paul is clear, I think, that where the discontent heart is, that's where a temptation is. And the one that can lead you into very harmful desires that he says will plunge you into ruin and destruction and ultimately, I think, end with you being a false teacher. Someone who perpetuates this idea that this is going to make you happier. And inevitably, you have stopped working to uphold the honor of God in every moment that you might make or get whatever honor you feel you're entitled to at the moment. And what happens is you plunge your life you make a shipwreck of your faith. And the sad part is, is that you make a shipwreck of the lives of those you love who are on the same boat with you. As their faith is somewhat marred as well. And verse 10 is, I think, well, probably one of the misquoted verses, most misquoted verses in the Bible. Because it doesn't say money is evil. It says the love of money is evil and leads to all kinds of as does anything else that you become convinced is more satisfying than Jesus. Anything that you believe, as Adam and Eve did, that having this will make me happier than having God. That's the core of it. Honoring God, living a life of of contentment demands that knowing Jesus, lifting up Jesus as all-satisfying, upholding the name of Jesus in every terrible, horrible, wonderful situation, that's belief. Not super belief, that's belief. And ask yourself a question, quite frankly. Is Jesus enough? I mean, really. Is Jesus really enough? If you take away whatever is that thing you're so scared of losing or not getting... Is Jesus still enough? Is it enough that Jesus loves you? That the God of the universe loves you? Is it enough that Jesus has given you what you need and promises to give you what you need? Is it enough that Jesus blesses you with riches? Is it enough that Jesus freely gives you eternal life that you do not deserve? Is it enough that Jesus promises to give you strength to overcome any temptation, to get through any trial with joy? Is it enough that Jesus promises to bring you peace? Is it enough that He was shamed for you? That He was spit upon for you? Mocked for you? Is it enough that He was Nailed to a cross, a place that you deserve to die for you? Is it enough that He rose again and gave you new life that now He lives through you? Is it enough that He mediates for your sin right now, every day? That He is constantly standing before God, saying, my work, not His. My work, not hers. Is that enough? Is it enough to know that Jesus is coming again to kick some tail and you're on His team? If you are on His team? Is it enough that if you don't get what you want or think that you need, if blank gets taken away, if, if you never get whatever it is that you think you have to have, if things get worse... Not better. Is Jesus still enough? Because if you go, Jesus, ah, yeah, ah, but I would really like, that's the seeds and beginnings of discontent. And Jesus doesn't want 
joyless, make-do-ism. He wants full satisfaction and joy in Him. And I, act, I believe wholeheartedly that comes by the grace of God. And so as you sit in your discontent and you go, I don't want to be discontent, act of grace. Confess your discontent. Plead to God to change your desires to help, as the disciples asked, our unbelief. And then come to the table and declare Him all satisfying. And know that it's work, it's pursuit to have joy in Him. But the alternative is to lead you into a place that is never satisfying and that you will fall for every lie that thinks will make you happy when what will make you happy truly is Christ. Let's pray. Father, I confess that this week I worshipped other idols. And I thought for many moments that something other than what you have given me would be more satisfying. I pray, Lord, for all, all those who are here that, Holy Spirit, You will open our eyes to see You, see Jesus Christ as most satisfying. That You will empower us to live a life of contentment in a situation that from all fleshly measurement, one should never be content. But because we live with the eternal perspective, because we live with the hope that is You, Lord, we live with the joy that's amazing. I pray for contentment. I pray You'll move us to a place where we worship You with every thought and word and deed out of a heart of joy that's been accepted and loved and given everything regardless if we get anything more. In your son's blood we pray. Amen.